This is the New Life Rancho Vista podcast. We are a church committed to loving God, growing together, and serving others. Our prayer and desire is that this message from our campus pastor, Peter Moore, will be a help and an encouragement to you, regardless of where you are in your relationship with Jesus. So let's open our hearts and minds as we turn our attention to the incredible truths God has for us today. We're in James. We're in the fourth week in James, and it's getting real. Uh, really, James is going to start amping up uh, some of the personal, uh, practical truth that he has for us, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, James chapter 2 is where we're at. We're going to uh, finish out the chapter today. We were in James chapter 2 last week. This week, we're going to be talking about real faith, real faith. Now, have you ever uh, been into a model home? And you open up the fridge, you're just kind of looking around and they have that fruit that's there, you know, or the vegetables or whatever. And it, it's just so obviously fake, you don't even need to touch it. You can tell it's fake. Well, that's kind of how a lot of people outside the church view Christians. They're so fake to them, they don't even need to go near them. They just assume that what they have isn't real. But have you ever been in a mall or... Or maybe you were wondering if the plant behind me is real, and I have to let you down, it's fake. But, but if you have your walked by a plant or, or, or some type of tree or shrub and you thought, is that real? And, and what do you do in order to see if it's real? You actually take a leaf off and, and, and try to break it and say, wow, that is real. That, that actually looks so perfect. It it's, looks fake, but it's not. It's real. Now, what I want to do with our faith today is I want to kind of peel back a layer and say, is it real? Is your faith real? And I want you to see in James chapter 2, because at the end of James 2, it kind of summarizes everything he said. In James chapter 2, in verse number 26, it says this. It says, uh, For as the body is without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now, we're going to be talking about faith at the end of this study. Uh, in September, we're going to be talking about prayer. And we're going to be looking at verse number 6 that says, Let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave that's tossed in the sea, you know, tossed to and fro. And so we're going to be talking about real faith and prayer uh, in, at the end of James, James chapter 5. But today I want to talk about real faith. Because our faith, sometimes it's good to step back and take an inventory. Sometimes it's good to step back and say, is what I have real? Is what I have something that will last? And there are two questions that I believe that we need to ask. These are extremely simple questions, but I believe they're important to ask from time to time. And here are the two questions. Number one, is my faith real? Number two, is my fruit real? What does that mean and, and why do we ask those two questions? Well, first of all, let's ask the first one. Is your faith real? I want you to notice in verse number 14, it says, What does it profit, my brethren? So he's talking to Christians here. Uh, he uses the word brethren over 15 times in the book of James. He says, What does it profit, my brethren? Though a man say he hath faith and hath not works, can faith save him? And you say, well, wait a second. Yeah, faith saves people. It's by faith that we're saved by grace, right? Well, James is actually using this faith with an, with an implied article, which means, can that kind of faith save him? 
what he's asking is, is kind of what we read in verse 26 about the fact that faith being alone is dead. And so does a faith that do, does no good, is that faith alive? And so is your faith dead or alive? Is it, a, is it a dormant faith or is it an active faith? That's what James is asking. That's what he's trying to get at. Is the same faith that does nothing good through the power of the Holy Spirit, is that same faith powerful enough to save? And so you have to ask yourself, if you're never doing anything good, is your faith any good? Or as one author put it, uh, is it good to have a faith that does no good? Now, the reason why I believe James is, is making this point is because I think he's pointing us back to the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, all throughout the book of James, James will point us back to his half-brother Jesus speaking the greatest sermon ever preached on the Sermon on the Mount. And when James is pointing us back to this, I believe he's pointing us specifically in this passage to Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus is talking about real and genuine faith. And in Matthew 7, and verse 22, it says this, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name uh, done many wonderful works? And then I will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. Whoa, that is really, really tough to hear. Jesus said there's going to be people who are not on the B team. They're on the A team. They're casting out demons. They're doing things that, that are incredible. But they don't know me, and I don't know them. Can I ask you, do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? More importantly, does he know you? That's a fair question to ask. And I think that's an important question for all of us to ask. Are we going through the motions or do we have real faith? The reason why I believe James is making this point through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is because James remembers a time where he didn't have real faith. James actually, for, for the longest time, believed in God and, and you know, went to the synagogue and, and studied the Bible, but James did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. In fact, James's brothers and sisters all throughout Jesus' ministry did not believe until he rose again from the dead the third day. In fact, in John 7 verse 5, it says that neither did his brethren believe in him. So James had believed on the person of Jesus. He knew who Jesus was and he believed that Jesus was a person, that he existed, of course. But he did not believe that he was his savior. He did not put his faith and trust into Jesus as being the one, the only begotten of the Son of God that could bring him peace with God. And so it's important for us to think about our journey to faith. And it's important to understand how we receive Christ as our Savior. Now, many of you uh, in our church family, I've gotten to hear your story. Some of you I haven't. But I would encourage you, here's an action item for you. I would encourage you to write down how you came to faith, how you placed your faith in Jesus Christ uh, alone to save you. When you write that down, I believe it'll really prepare you to know how to share that in the future, but it'll also give you the reassurance to know I have saving faith and I have begun a relationship with Christ. Now, many people say to, say to me, Pastor Peter, listen, I've always trusted in Christ. I've always believed in God. And I look at them and I say, well, I haven't always been my father's son. I had to have a moment of birth in order for that to happen. I haven't always been Daniel's husband. I had to have a moment of asking her to be my wife. And so every relationship needs a beginning point. 
And if your relationship with God does not have a beginning point, you have to ask yourself, do you have one that is legitimate, that is real? Do you have real faith? I'm not trying to get you to question your salvation. In fact, if you're having doubts about your salvation, it's probably meaning it's the attack of Satan to try to get you to doubt what is already there. But I will tell you that if you can't remember a time when you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to do that. In fact, I don't always do this, but I want to encourage you to do that right now. Because you say, how can I know that I have this relationship. And 1 John 1, 5 says, He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. And in that very next verse, it says, These things have I written unto you, that you may believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, that ye may believe on the Son of God. And so if you believe that Jesus can save you, I would encourage you to call out to Him today. Jesus only goes where He's invited. I would encourage you to invite Him into your life today. You can pray this prayer. Say, Dear Jesus, right now, wherever you're at, in the car, in your house, if you've never begun a relationship with Jesus Christ, and many of you are, are joining us for the first time, I would encourage you, call out to God right now. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, and I know I can't deal with my sin on my own, but I trust in you and you alone to save me from my sin. Thank you for dying on the cross and rising again for my salvation. I trust in you and you alone to save me in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, prayer doesn't save you, but placing your faith in Jesus does. Jesus is the only one who came to earth. He, he lived a sinless life so that he could pay for your sin. Friend, if you received that, you have begun a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you've invited him into your life. Now that you have that faith, now that you have that, that, that wonderful moment of beginning that relationship, now you have to ask yourself, okay, now what? And I have a lot of people who've begun that relationship recently ask me, now what? Now what do I do? What, what, do, what, I, need, what do I need to do in this relationship? And I want to tell you a little secret and, and that a lot of religion won't tell you, and that is it's incredibly simple. Many people want to overcomplicate the Christian life. Many people want to say there's a 12-step program and all of this. And, and really, the reality of the Christian life is the question and the answer, what do I need to do next? What is your next step? What does God want to grow in you next? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you uh, the next question because in order to understand, do I have real faith, really it leads us to the next question, and that is, do I have real fruit? And what do I mean by fruit, and what does that have to do with James chapter 2? I want you to see in James chapter 2, because he's going to talk about real faith in contrast to works. And another word for works in James chapter 2 is actually the word fruit, something that is produced, Okay. And so I want to do this. I want to read this passage, and then I'm going to read it again, and I'm going to switch out some of the words that I think will help you to understand what is being said here. And so James chapter 2 and verse number 17, it says, Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Verse 18, Yea, if a man say, uh, Thou hast faith, and I have works, show me thy faith without thy works. And then James says, I will show you my faith by my works. And then he says in verse 20, he kind of recaps and asks a rhetorical question, that's really convicting. He says, but wilt thou know, O vain man? Don't you know it's so empty that what you're saying? Because faith without works is dead. It's pointless. It doesn't produce anything. And so I want to read this again, but I want to read it uh, holding uh, something from my 
uh, yard. So the, the owner of the house before us planted a fruit tree. Uh, he planted it in our front yard, which was an interesting place to plant a fruit tree. Uh, but but I, want, I, want you to, I want you to read this with me, okay? And I want to I replace the word faith with fruit tree. And I want you to replace the word works with the word fruit. And I want you to understand how this works together. All right, so verse 17, even so faith or a fruit tree, if it hath not works, fruit, it is dead being alone. If a man say, uh, thou hast a fruit tree and I have fruit, well, I say, show me uh, my fruit tree by my fruit. And then verse 19, which we'll get to in a minute, he says, he talks about how the devils believe and tremble, meaning head knowledge is nothing. It's like leaves on a tree. It's not real fruit. And so in verse 20, he says, O vain man, don't you know a fruit tree without fruit is dead? What is a fruit tree without fruit? It's a dying, pointless tree. And so it's the fruit on a tree that shows there's life, and it's life in the tree that gives it fruit. Do you see how that's two sides of the same coin? Now, the proof of your faith, whether or not it's real or not, uh, is not based on what you know, your head knowledge, or even what you say, but it is actually what you do. See, real faith is proven by the fruit that you produce in your Christian life. Now, here's a key thought. Real faith produces real fruit, but real fruit grows from the grace-enabled action that the Holy Spirit uh, produces. And so we have to come back to the grace of God enabling us to produce the fruit that was put in us, the possibility of bearing that fruit was put in us at the moment of salvation. Now, some people might say, well, how do I know I actually believe? How do I know I actually believe this thing? Not salvation, I know I'm saved, but how do I know I'm believing what I'm listening to and what I'm hearing? Okay, how do I know it's actually a part of my life? Well, Jesus talked a lot about that on the Sermon of the Mount. In Matthew 7, verse 21, it says, Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But in verse 21, he says, But he that doeth the will of the Father which is in heaven. So the fact that we're doing his will shows that we believe it. And Jesus co goes with that same uh, analogy. In verse 24 of Matthew 7, he says, He that doeth my sayings is like unto one that buildeth his house upon a rock. He says, if you're going to do it, you believe it. And the, the problem with false prophets is they say one thing and do another. And Jesus talked about false prophets. He said, Beware of false prophets, for they come unto you in sheep's clothing and, and inwardly are ravaging wolves. He says, ye shall know them by their fruits. So he's using that parallel now as well. Men do gather grapes and thorns or, or figs and thistles. He's like, you don't gather the thistles, you gather the figs. You don't gather the thorns, you gather the grapes. And he says, even so every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, and a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. And so what we're coming back to is what we studied Last week in verse number 12, where it says, So speak ye and so do. 
as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. So the law of liberty says you have the grace now to produce in your life something that you could not produce otherwise. You do not have to produce it through legalism and standards. You do not have to produce it uh, through your own flesh, through your own ideas, through your own determination. No, the law of liberty says the grace of God has given you the power you need to produce what you are looking for in your life. You see, the blessing that you want is right beyond the moment of your next obedience. And so whatever God is leading you to obey, that is what God wants you to do in order to uh, see his blessing. So verse number uh, 25 of chapter 1 of James, it says, When we look into the perfect law of liberty, we're not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. We're blessed in our deed. And so it's faith with our works, faith in action that shows forth the real fruit. Now, real faith always moves into action. And so there's three fruits that I want to show you in this passage, three examples of being a fruitful Christian, of being a Christian that has real faith, okay? And this is where the rubber meets the road. I want you to see these and we'll be finished. First is, uh, letter A in your notes, is real fruit, the real fruit of service. The real fruit of service. Now look at verse number 15 because it's going to give us an example of real Christianity being love in action, which we talked about last week. Now look at verse number 15. If a brother or sister be naked, a little awkward, okay, but if they're naked and destitute of daily food, and one says to the depart in peace, I would say depart in peace too if you were naked, okay, so just depart in peace. But what it's talking about is having only one pair of clothing. They're, they're, they're one pair of clothing and they don't have the outer clothing to make them warm at night. They're, they're out of clothing and they're out of food. They're hungry. They have zero food in their possession and they have zero uh, means of, of, of housing and, and, and some type of, of clothing. And he says, If you say, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? And so I ask you the question I asked before, what good is a faith that does no good? How are we supposed to be the household of faith that does not show the love of Jesus to people around us? And so I want to ask you a question. What have you done that's loving to those around you since last week we heard that God wants us to be love in action? What have you done since last week? Now, I'm not trying to pile on guilt or, or shame, and I know this is a difficult time, but I will tell you that you will, you will know people by their fruits, and the fruit of service is something that Jesus said, all men will know that you are my disciples by how you show love one to another. We can't just be hearers of the word, as James chapter 1 says. We must be doers of the word. We cannot forget that we are made in the likeness of Christ and that we are to mirror his virtue. We are to pour out his virtue into those around us. And so virtue is that goodness that comes because we are made new in Jesus Christ. And virtue is not something that you hold on to. Virtue is something that you pour into others. And so Jesus in Mark 5, he, he was touched by the woman with the issue of blood. And what happened? Virtue went out of him. I love one of my favorite passages is Acts chapter 10 and verse 38. It says that Jesus was blessed of the Holy Ghost and that he went about doing good. Man, I hope that is said about us, that we are going about doing good. But many times Christians are going about hoarding good. Now, I don't want to come down on them because 
he's seven years old, but my son Chandler, he has gotten really good at finding snacks and stashing them around the house for a rainy day or for, for today. <laughs> I mean, if, if he finds good snacks, they will disappear and it doesn't mean he eats them right away. Sometimes he does. But, I mean, he's a food dude, right? I mean, he loves good food. And so sometimes we'll find a fruit roll-up uh, under a cushion or we'll peel back uh, something and we're cleaning them. We're like, how in the world are all of these packages of cookies behind this uh, desk? Or, I mean, he has all of these different areas. He's really good at hoarding food. And I will tell you, he just likes good food. He has a sweet tooth, right? And, and so, but some of us, we are hoarding the blessings that God has given us. And God says, I did not give you the blessings to feel blessed only. I gave you the blessings so that you could be a blessing. So what is God giving you that he wants you to pour into others? Hoarding something good that God has given is never good. And so that's why Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. And what is he talking about? He's talking about doing good to the household of faith. And, and here's an action that I want to give you, and that is just to choose one person this week. Choose one family this week and really encourage them. Pray for them. Tell them you're praying and encourage them. Do something to encourage them, whether it's a text uh, with a gift card or uh, whether it's cooking some, some baked goods or cookies and taking it to their house and writing them a note or or whether it's just doing something for them to help them. Friend, we have to be the hands and feet of Jesus, especially during this time. There are lonely people around you. There are hopeless people around you. And they will not know that people care if we do not show them that we love them through our actions. And so we must have the fruit. Real faith must have the fruit of service. But then James continues and he gives us more examples. In fact, the second example he gives is the example of Abraham's willingness to sacrifice, and that's letter B. It's the real fruit of sacrifice. And, and this is what he says about Abraham. He says, Abraham, our father, justified by works when he had offered Isaac, his son, upon the altar. Now, it's interesting the way he words this because it sounds like he actually kills his son on the altar. But we know God's against human sacrifice. So what is the real story? The real story was Abraham was so willing that he in his mind had already obeyed and God had intervened in his behalf. In fact, we know from Hebrews that, that Abraham believed God so much that he believed that if he killed Isaac on Mount Moriah, on that altar, that he believed God would bring Isaac back from the dead. That's the type of faith that Abraham had. He was willing to sacrifice even his only and firstborn son. So here's a key thought. When pleasing God, we must understand that it's our, it needs to be our passion. And when pleasing God is our passion, then self-sacrifice is just a natural reaction. It's just something that we do because we're passionate about pleasing God. And so that's what Abraham was passionate about. Verse 22, it says, seeing how faith was wrought with his works, meaning it was together with his works, and his works made his faith perfect. Verse 23 the scripture was fulfilled saying that Abraham believed God and it was imputed or it was counted unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then how by works a man is justified, not by faith only. Now this sounds like, man, is this teaching work salvation? Like that's not good. We don't work our way to heaven. I mean, because if we work our way to heaven, that means that what Jesus did on the cross wasn't enough, right? 
And so this isn't talking about work salvation, but, but why do we get tripped up by this passage? Well, because the word justified all the way leading up to this has been used by the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul used justification in a little bit different light. The words both mean two different things. It means, yes, just as if I'd never sinned. So it does mean justification, the salvation of your soul, the, the, the redemption of your soul, the purification of your soul. It does mean that at salvation, but it also can mean the reflection of what has happened. And that's how James is using it. Paul uses this as a transformation of salvation, but James using it, using it justification as a reflection of that conversion. I love how John Calvin says it. He says, faith alone justifies, but a faith that justifies is never alone. That's the two paradigms. It's two sides of the same coin. And so the real question is not whether or not we understand this passage. The real question is this. Do we have a life that reflects Jesus Christ? Do we have a life that brings glory to God? You say, well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, not everything I do glorifies God, but let me ask you this. Does your glory, does your story bring glory to God? And, and you say, well, I don't, I don't know. How, how could my story bring glory to God? And, and that's, a, that's a great question because the only way your story can bring glory to God is if it's shared. So I would encourage you, sacrifice maybe a, a moment of time maybe to sacrifice your pride and share the story that you've written down. Remember how I told you to write down the story of when you got saved? I would encourage you to share that. Whether it's messaging a friend online or, or, or family member or emailing it or, or even posting something online, just saying, this is what happened. You might call a friend or a coworker and say, you know, I've never shared something and it's one of the most important things that's ever happened to me. And this may not mean a lot to you, but it means a lot to me. And let me just take two minutes to tell you what's happened to me. That is real faith in action. And so A.W. Tozer said, the glory of God always comes at the sacrifice of self. And that's why I love uh, our, our groups, our life groups. I love the men's group and the ladies' group. The men's group last Wednesday night, it was just so refreshing to hear guys not talk about how they're getting everything right, but actually talking about things that they haven't gotten right and what God's doing in their life and what are they doing. They're just sacrificing their reputation. They're sacrificing maybe how you might think of them, but what they're doing is they're saying, no, I just have a real faith and it's growing and, and, and I want you to know that it's the grace of God that's working in me and we're doing this together and, and that's the type of faith that I want. I want a real faith. You see, hiding growth and imperfection, it robs God of the glory that he deserves in the moments that he's trying to redeem. He's trying to show that he is the one that brings uh, good out of evil. He's the one that brings uh, redemption out of tragedy. He's the one that can bring something that's broken into a redeeming moment. And friend, if you are ignoring and trying to hide all of those moments, he can't get glory out of it. And so the fruit of service is certainly true. This fruit of sacrifice. What are we going to sacrifice to bring glory to Him? But then finally, and then we're finished, and that is the fruit of surrender. Now, it's interesting that it gives us this, this third example in one verse, and it's the example of Rahab. Now, I haven't studied Rahab a lot. I studied her in college, but uh, Rahab, as it says in verse 25, likewise was not Rahab, Rahab a uh, the harlot uh, justified by works when she had received the two messengers and had sent them out another way. 
So you say, man, Rahab, I mean, she was justified. I mean, what, what in the world? How do you know that? Well, uh, Hebrews tells us that, that she had great faith and that her faith even uh, inspired her family to have great faith. You say, well, Rahab, I mean, she was not known for receiving men into her house uh, to protect them. She was known for receiving men into her house for other reasons. I understand that. But what God is saying here is that, that at, the, at some moment she realized how great God was. In fact, she says in Joshua that, she, that the whole nation, uh, the Canaanite nation, knew how great their God was and they were fearful. See, she believed that God was doing something great. And she turned from bringing men into her house for unholiness and she decided to bring men into her house to do something right. She believed and God shows us in Scripture how her belief was then shown forth through the fruit of her action and it was surrender. What did she surrender? She surrendered something that was immediately convenient it would have been convenient for her not to lie to the king, to not, to not to hide those fugitives. It would have been a lot more convenient for her uh, just to go on with her actions that she was used to. What did she do? She surrendered something that was convenient for something that was eternally significant. Now, that's what we're doing. We're in 21 days of prayer and fasting. We're surrendering something that is convenient for something that is significant. You know what I think is significant? Rahab's name means significance. She no longer found her significance in, in what she was doing to make herself feel better. She now found significance in what she was doing to further the work of God. That's the moment of true surrender, is when you put away your side and your things and your uh, feelings and you start living the life God wants you to live. So what are you going to give up this week? Is it uh, coffee or, or some, some type of pleasure on, on, uh, online or uh, maybe a meal? What are you going to fast the next few days? What are you going to give up that's convenient in order to receive something that's eternally significant? See, the moment of saving faith must not be overshadowed by living daily by faith. So here's the takeaway and then we're finished. Faith is not just a test that we need to pass and then we're done with it. Faith is a position that we ponder and then improve. You say, how do I improve my position in faith? And I want to remind you of what Hebrews 12, 2 says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, despised, uh, despising the shame, uh, and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God, consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. See, the reason saving faith is so important is not just because life is all about going to heaven. Heaven's wonderful and I'm thankful for it. But life is not, the number one goal of life is not going to heaven. The number one goal of life is being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And so friend, how do we do this? We do this by seeking to produce the fruit that only the Holy Spirit inside of us, the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ inside of us can produce. What is that fruit? It's the fruit of service, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness. It's the fruit of sacrifice. 
That's what true love is, self-sacrifice. And it's truly the fruit of surrender. What are you going to surrender today in order to receive what God is having right on the other side of your next step of obedience? Let's surrender to the Lord today. Thanks again for listening. If you would like to learn more about our church or how to get connected, check us out online at findnewlife.church or find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle Five New Life. Have an amazing day.